Chapter Seven of the Will and the Way Stories. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Will and the Way Stories by Jesse Benton Fremont. Chapter Seven, The Two Wills. Our steamer was rolling and tossing in the Gulf Stream, and a rainstorm added its damp misery. The healthy passengers, even, were tied down by continued rough weather since leaving New York, but we had a number of invalids on board for Nassau, to whom it was much more than temporary discomfort. They took it each in their nature, some with sweet resignation, and some were so irritated as almost to make one forget their sad need for forbearance. The driest place was a little glassed-in cabin on deck. It was an old and small steamer, making a last passenger trip before going off on freight work only. Its wretched deck leaked into the main cabin, so this little cuddy above was full always, the sick on the sofas, and we well people, as we could seat ourselves more or less well, chiefly less well. One passenger, we called him the giant because he was six foot three, and wore the peaked hood of his long frieze ulster drawn over his cap, and seemed quite seven feet high, deliberately sat upon the floor which brought his head to a level with ours. He was one of our near friends in New York, a manly sunny nature, and a great resource to us, though he was to go on to Havana on his regular winter sugar business. There was not room enough on little Nassau for so much size and vitality. This special rainy miserable day, the captain decided to practice the crew at fire drill. First telling the ladies and invalids that it would be only a drill, and no need for alarm. There was one lad of about sixteen, who had distinguished himself by always lying full length on the longest sofa, to the exclusion of two real invalids, gentle ladylike women, a mother and daughter who looked both ill and in grief. The giant had threatened to lift the younger to his feet, but he too seemed an invalid, though he was really so rude and sulky you could not decide if it was only seasickness or some more lasting form of illness. His meals were brought up to him, and he was exacting and capricious to a degree, but his obsequious English attendant gave in Uriah-like to every whim. The captain had told this Englishman to warn the lad of the drill, but as the boy was sleeping, and active nausea overtook his attendant, it chanced the warning did not get to him. He was wildly alarmed at the rush of sailors hurrying by with gleaming axes, the hoarse orders called out, the calls of every kind, for many took it in earnest. It was a din and alarm upsetting to even healthy nerves. Though he was quickly told by us that it was only a practice fire drill, yet he turned angrily on us ladies. This is an outrage. My life is valuable. I must not be excited, as though we were responsible. The captain was really troubled that this had occurred. For, as he told us, the boy was right. His life was valuable in the meaning of property to his family. The giant gathered the story and told it to us. 
when nassau was the rendezvous for blockade runners during our war great chances for quick money-making opened up to the islanders and they had some years of extravagant prosperity one shrewd old native merchant made a big war fortune and when peace put an end to further gains of importance he would not return to the once keen delight in wrecks but gathered his riches and betook himself to london as the only place now suitable for him once there he found uncomfortable differences between himself and those he met and being a man of good hard sense realized his money could not cover the lack of other advantages he had an old quarrel with his only child but now he adopted her son as his heir driving as usual a hard bargain the boy must live with him in london and be entirely his he would educate him suitably for his fortune but he must drop all connection with his family and they must look for no part in the fortune on their side also were conditions made they would not give up the boy until he was legally adopted as the heir to be suitably provided for from the start and to inherit at the death of the grandfather if he should die before the grandfather the old man was then free to make other disposal of his money but not while the boy lived this being all made safe the child for he was but fourteen then was sent to england where naturally after a while his health began to give out anything more sweet more even and softly warm than the climate of nassau from october to may cannot well be while english damp must be felt to be realized my sealskin jacket feels no warmer than one of linen i have heard a healthy american girl say in november there and a young stomach accustomed to the light food and much fruit of nassau was not fitted for the change to a solid diet of meat and ale altogether england was too much for the boy and now he had to be sent back for a while to his native heir to gain strength enough to return and be fitted out for that exacting fortune on the atlantic crossing he took cold and his english attendant a sort of nurse and tutor combined for he was not to lose time was very nervous lest he should be blamed the boy was really suffering but also wonderfully selfish and full of his own importance while dimly he began to feel he might be in danger the captain knowing nassau well and knowing the consequences attached to the boy's life wished to deliver him in good order to his parents who were watching for his arrival anxious and not pleased with him for breaking down it was really a bad box for the poor fellow he was made to feel on all sides that he was not wanted for himself but for the money depending on his life really though it was hard to keep our compassion free from annoyance from his most disagreeable ways and we were not sorry to lose sight of him on arriving and yet we are all so curiously drawn into an invisible network of circumstances that this boy was the active cause of distressing the lives of two persons he never saw or knew of who did not know each other and with both of whose distress though strangers to me i too became closely interwoven it is not a long passage 
four days take one from the cold and snow of new york past stormy hatteras and across the rough waters of the gulf stream into the serene comforting mildness and warm sunshine of the little island an island lying like a whale's back out of water with no soil no water no chance for malaria just a hump of dry coral rock with lovely blue sea in sight on three sides from the hotel which is on top of the whale's head the english government built this fine spacious hotel as a health resort for american invalids it is also their own health station for their army and navy in the west indies you feel the solid english government all about you there its good influence pervades all things as surely as does the climate like the island this hotel is dry and free from damp because it too is of coral rock this cuts into blocks as easily as chalk but hardens in the air and makes a most healthy house around the hotel which is built like a ship with rounded stern are on each story wide galleries where the sun the soft trade winds and even temperature bring healing to tired throats and torn lungs nassau is a mere dot a pinhead spot on the map but for some years it was of the utmost value and necessity during the war and these wide galleries of the hotel on the hill intended for invalids were then continually crowded with eager men on the lookout for coming blockade runners and when these were chased by our vessels the excitement grew tremendous as first one then the other ship seemed gaining not until the protecting marine league limit was reached could the race be decided then yells and english cheers and cries of excited joy from the blacks rent the air for the safety of the blockade runner meant money to them all and far more than money to the southerners them was the bountiful days mistis the dusky head chambermaid lamented to me them was the days when gentlemen threw their money around our consul had less pleasing things to tell of those bountiful days now the hotel was not crowded and extreme quiet reigned invalids stretched on steamer chairs low kind voices reading aloud to them the stifled coughs the languid movements of those walking on the galleries this had replaced the full life of men roused to highest tension by war and gain i hold nassau in grateful memory as the bridge that carried us safe over a yawning gulf of anxiety but i would never again take an invalid where illness and not health made the mental atmosphere where there is no getting away from the sight and sound of illness it is hard not to become nervous or morbid there seemed enough of this at the hotel but even here we did not escape our grumpy young fellow traveller he was with his own family of course but he represented the great days when fortune smiled on nassau and nassau honored him as its own special invalid and he was so widely discussed that he became a topic of morbid interest to our traveler invalids there was no cable and only one mail in three weeks fancy our intense interest when the signal flag ran up at fort fincastle to report the mail steamer sighted 
sail vessels came in between times but our only news was condensed into this once in three weeks mail inevitably local interests grew to unnatural proportions the passion for betting is perhaps even stronger with the english than with americans and bets on the coming news were the favorite form of betting in this lone and sea-girt solitude young anthony had become a fixed betting subject he and his grandfather had the interest of a race for the betters in fact of the community in general if young anthony lived to inherit his delicate health would keep him in nassau therefore his money would remain and be spent there and if he should die soon after inheriting he would most probably bequeath to his father and mother and they would keep the money in the island but if the elder anthony outlived the boy the money was lost to nassau the grandfather had announced this there were old scores to pay and this was his retaliation he too had long suffered from the transplanting to the cold damp climate and was seriously ill when the boy sailed but then again young anthony had failed rapidly during the long sea voyage bets were many and for nassau heavy as to what news the steamer should bring a ghastly kind of amusement but so it was nassau against london the first steamer told the grandfather was much weaker while the boy was decidedly revived then began a race for life and the friends of young anthony like mr dombey's sister who urged upon the dying fanny to make an effort urged the poor boy to make his effort one sent her carriage daily another sent delicate food and honeymoon house was taken for him and in spite of his protests he was carried there this was a villa by the sea never used except for wedding tours there was nowhere to travel to unless you took to the water, and this pretty place, a little out of town, had been given up by its owner to bridal couples, and so got its name. At Honeymoon House, the second steamer found the boy less strong, and the grandfather better. Bets began to vary, and London was ahead of Nassau. Also the boy, surly and contrary by nature, and capricious now from disease began to rebel against making that effort they required of him he was reported to have said if they didn't let him alone he would die to spite them that the money was no good to him anyway he knew he could not live long anyway and all they wanted him to live for was that they might get it for themselves that they had given him away for that money and now he was dying because they had sent him into the english climate when we were told of this bitter feeling of the poor lad it made us very sorry for him there was so much truth in it he showed his grandfather's shrewd insight in going to the hard facts that underlaid his illness but it was too sorrowful that he should have lost faith in the love of his parents we had to keep very early hours it was the wise rule for the benefit of the invalids but from seven to nine in the evenings the drawing-room gathered many pleasant people from the outside also the billiard-room was a large detached building in the grounds of the hotel 
and on its verandas and under the huge silk cotton tree which shaded it met citizens and travelers and the officers of the garrison and the naval officers from ships in port the billiard room was in fact the club the exchange for news the one animated place in the placid stagnant island from among these we had our regular contingent of visitors we had found the hotel so seriously invalid that after one evening in the great blank drawing-room a spirit of change and reform seized us nothing is more discouraging than bare white walls and lamps with staring cold white shades one feels thrown back by the blank and lack of cheerful color we got the aid and consent of the housekeeper who brought out some colored table covers with which we covered the large round table and some smaller ones we bought at the confectioner's sheets of red and pink and white and yellow tissue paper and made of them finely pleated lampshades which changed to warmth the tone of the walls and concentrated bright light on the tables the piano was brought out from the wall and its long harsh outline softened by a great scotch plaid of scarlet and brown while the solid comfortable ugly haircloth furniture no longer knew itself from the bright turkish towels draped on backs and cushions altogether it became a cheery bright room flowers and work baskets portfolios of sketches writing pads magazines all manner of domestic small objects gave personal effects while the delighted invalids caught on and it made an object in their empty days to find some fresh idea to add to our club room lovely flowers were gathered and the musical resources were called out and combined we found we had two pianists of real merit and a remarkable banjoist while except santley i have never heard such an english tenor as the middle-aged english officer who came gladly to have his accompanies played and to practice also there was an artist of merit who showed us at night the sketches in oil he made by day it was a refreshing pleasant time from seven to nine then quiet for the invalids we really were as great a success as an opera troupe with the advantages of visits and talking added the nicest people came to visit us then among our most constant and most agreeable of visitors was the chief surgeon of the post a man who had won high distinction and promotion by his valuable report on yellow fever in the west indies and his noble conduct during an unusually pestilential season of this fever when after all their troops had been sent elsewhere he had asked permission to remain and give his aid to the natives which he had done thoroughly remaining until the pestilence was over though such was its violence that the very monkeys fell from the trees in marked conditions of the fever this surgeon felt a great pity for young anthony and gave him all the sympathy and courage he could infuse into him the evening we heard of the boy's revolt against any more trying there came up a most interesting talk on the influence of will against disease and from this officer's large experience 
he gave us many evidences where he had seen it really stay its progress, even avert death. It was an evening of talk that both instructed and elevated. One of the remembered steps in lifting one upwards to the invisible plane of the soul above the hampering fetters of our visible life, and gave courage by showing how much lay within the power of one's own will. I noticed one young and most interesting invalid from Boston listening with fascinated attention. We had become quite friendly already, and I was not surprised when she came to me early the next morning for a good talk. I want you to stand by me in something I am going to do. You will understand. My aunt will not. When I saw you brushing away the mildew from our lives here, I felt the stir of life in my veins again. You have made this sad place less sad, and last night I realized that exhausted as I am, I can yet help myself by concentrating all my will. I want to live. I ought to until my birthday. It is only six weeks away. But if will can do it, I will live till then. This case of young Anthony is so much my own. I, too, must reach to making my will, and I must go off to save myself. I cannot bear hearing about him. It is already more than I can do to keep from thinking of my own need to live beyond a fixed date, and it makes me wild to know of this boy struggling up, then falling back. If he dies before his grandfather, I will feel it is my fate to die before I can make my will. I will go to Havana to get rid of hearing of him, for I must, I will, live past my twenty-fifth birthday. Let me tell you, and with the poor, thin, clammy hands held fast in mine, sure of tender sympathy, she told me her story. Her grandfather had large estates in land and forest. He had only two children, her mother being one. When she was very young, both her mother and father died, and she was brought up sternly, without cruelty, but utterly without love or indulgence, by her uncle, who had been left by his will complete manager of all the grandfather's property until she should reach twenty-five. If she died under twenty-five, his undivided authority was to continue for a fixed number of years longer. Even if she had married and had children, she could not alter this condition or dispose of her property by will until she reached that twenty-fifth birthday. She had married, she had two little children, and she could not bear to leave them subject to her hard, cold, narrow uncle, but wanted their father and his mother, a long-hearted, sweet, womanly woman, to bring them up with all the advantages her wealth ought to give. They will not be strong, she said. My mother and my father both died from consumption, and see me? They must have a good climate. There is plenty of money. The estates have been well managed, but my uncle would never increase my allowance. It is his interest I should die under twenty-five, and so leave everything in his hands. Years ago I begged to go to Italy to save my life. She was a pupil of Hunt's, and painted with power and freedom. 
but he laughed at me and said my own imprudence not the boston climate was to blame that i was safest where the family could look after me now hopelessly broken down she had been brought by two of her husband's family an aunt and her husband away from the northern winter they were kind but had no comprehension of her nervous oversensitive nature now become morbid from mental as well as physical pain they honestly mean well when they insist on regular hours that i shall drive or lie down at fixed hours and eat regularly of nourishing food when i loathe it how can i be regular and keep a routine when i am flying to pieces cried the poor thing i am nearly wild from all the restraints i put upon myself already i push down thoughts and memories but baby voices call me and all the time i see that date of my birthday like the writing on the wall it is my doom i brought my painting traps with me the weaving cocoa palms against the tropic sky and ocean fascinated me i felt the smell of the paint hurts me and when the physician said so i gave up my painting too packed the box and screwed down its lid good-bye to that too i keep only one joy i write in a journal book for my little ones i tell them why i left home and love and came to the south to save my life long enough to be of use to them to secure them large income and the indulgences of feeling and tastes i was denied they shall be more free and happy than their mother was allowed to be and all through the book i put in little pictures the palms by the sea the patient black mothers carrying great loads of sugar-cane on their heads with their naked little children trotting by them they must know me though i will never know them except as fair little babies i was warned not to kiss because my breath might carry disease then i came away i will do them no ill but i must live to do them good now comes this young anthony to trouble and discourage me i told my aunt why i must go by the next steamer to havana she but more her husband treats that as a feverish fancy and tries to soothe me as one might a child scared by a dream but i know i could not stand his dying when the men laugh about the nassau against london bets i could scream and call out bet on me and that boy is giving way he has not motive enough to resist he cares only for himself could i endure this loneliness this horrid separation if it were for my good only but i must live on for six weeks more for the children my will is all ready for me to sign the day i am twenty-five i keep it close by me after that i can die in peace then i may go to my dear home and die among my own people not in a hotel go from nassau they did by the next steamer the uncle was hard to overcome but it would have been cruel to force her to remain with that fear on her and fortunately both the boy and his grandfather were living neck and neck said the betters when they got off 
For her sake, this was a real comfort to us. The excitement of carrying her point against resistance had so exhausted her that she was carried on board on a litter. Our consul, a most kind and considerate gentleman, had arranged all things for them with the steamer, and remained with them the short time before it put to sea again, as did their physician, for life seemed leaving her. Because the consul was not in his office these few hours, there came to pass the second evil influence from young Anthony, of which I spoke. But that is for another story. The end of this one is that before the Boston lady had been gone a week, young Anthony's case took a bad downward turn. Either he had not much power to resist disease, or he had not the will, the nerve to do so. But anyway, he died within that week. Then local interest fastened on the possibilities of the grandfather having died before him. But no, he outlived the grandson and made good his threat. Nassau lost the fortune. From Havana, then Florida, we had good news of the reviving effects of good scenes and thoughts on the Boston lady. And from a loving friend who joined her in Florida, I learned of the birthday reached, the will signed, and the great peace that came to the invalid then. For with the hard fight won, all resistance fell from her. She was taken home and had her yearning wish gratified. Among her own people, for whom she had secured a happier life than was given her, the end came. End of chapter 7 Recording by Roger Moline